Good morning. <clears throat> well, I hope you're glad to be at church because I certainly am. I appreciate your prayers and your encouragement while I've been out, and uh, I plan to be here a while, so let's get on with it. I've been in a series of lessons from the Gospel of John, and we saw in the fifth chapter a few weeks ago, Jesus heal a man in a dramatic, a dramatic way. A man who had been ill for 38 years, who had no help, who had no hope. Jesus stepped into his world and radically changed everything about him. But it caused a fuss because that miracle happened to occur on the Sabbath day. And so the religious elite, <clears throat> the experts in the law, decided that Jesus had broken the law because he was working on the Sabbath. So when they confronted him, Jesus answers in a way that caught them off guard. He gives testimony about who he is. He's the Messiah, the anointed one sent from God. He is God, son of God, son of man. And all of a sudden, the the Pharisees and the religious rulers are not so upset about the Sabbath law. There's a bigger issue at hand. Jesus has made himself equal to God, and that for them is blasphemy. So we saw his answer, and what we might call an autobiographical testimony, where Jesus explains who he is, who sent him, why he's here, what he brings with him. And we left there after that, um, that autobiographical testimony with an understanding that Jewish law required more. I was thinking about this in terms of a legal setting because uh, it really is, in, in John chapter 5, it really is a matter of Jewish law. And the Pharisees are sort of a kangaroo court in this moment, demanding uh, that Jesus recant his words or show proof. Jewish law required at least two witnesses for any claim or any charge. And so Jesus testifying to himself was not enough. We'll see that in just a minute. But I was thinking of this in terms of, uh, of a legal drama. And it dawned on me that, that, that we like that in our entertainment. Legal dramas are something that um, is a common genre within the movie industry. And so I was just kind of bouncing around in my head this week, um, movies with courtroom scenes that I really like. Now, there's no shortage of those kinds of movies, but the ones I really like, those courtroom scenes that, that have uh, some sort of twist, uh, uh, a testimony, a bit of evidence that, that, that spins things and, and, and turns it on its head. I thought of movies like To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the great courtroom scenes uh, in, in movie history. Charles Lawton in Witness for the Prosecution, an old movie from the 1950s that, uh, that, that has a fascinating plot. Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. Yeah? Judgment at Nuremberg, Inherit the Wind. And then as I really 
pondered courtroom scenes that I liked, uh, I had to include the ghost and Mr. Chicken. <laughs> but that's what this is, John chapter 5. It's sort of a, uh, a kangaroo court, an, an informal setting where, where they demand of Jesus. He has, first of all, broken the Sabbath, and they've confronted him in their minds, rightfully so. And his response was, well, I'm the one that invented the Sabbath, so I can do these things because I'm doing the work of my Father who sent me. He's been in Sabbath since creation, but his Sabbath has always involved doing the works that are in his will. And so Jesus makes the case that he's the Messiah, the chosen one. These critics demand more because Jewish law demands more than one witness. You can't testify to your own signature. That's why we have notary publics. There has to be somebody else who says this is what happened here. And so we're going to close out John chapter 5 this morning with a series of witnesses that Jesus will, in a sense, call to the stand to back up, to confirm, to offer evidence that what he has said about himself is true. And what we'll find out is that they didn't really want more evidence because they had already rejected the truth. Folks, when you're talking to somebody about faith in this generation, you're going to encounter those two responses. Either someone who is sincerely interested to know what they don't know, or someone who doesn't care what you have to offer because they've already decided against it. You see, acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ is never based on a lack of evidence. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was. There's no shortage of evidence. It is a volitional matter. It is always an act of will to choose to accept the evidence and to believe or to make up any excuse because any excuse will do and not believe. The problem with rejecting Jesus is not that we don't know enough. The problem is we have people who have a will who won't. Open your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to begin with verse 31. Witnesses called to the stand. Jesus is going to offer now a series of witnesses that, that testify to what he has already said about himself. In verse 31, as we go through the, the end of this chapter, Jesus acknowledges the need for another witness. He said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. That is, what one person says about himself has to have what in modern times we call corroborating evidence. There had to be a second witness. Verse 32, he provides one. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. I've called this the confidence of Jesus because he's not yet going to bring the, the Father to the stand, but he mentions that that is the unimpeachable witness that should settle this issue once and for all. What's fascinating about this verse is in, is in verse 32, no, 
No, verse, yeah, verse 32, he says, There is another who testifies about me. That word translated another is the Greek word alos, which means another of the same kind. So even in facing the charge, they've accused Jesus of blasphemy because in their minds they understand that he is making himself equal with God. But even when he says, well, there is a confirming piece of evidence, there is a witness who is unimpeachable in this process, he uses language that even in his defense reinforces the idea that Jesus is the same as God. The position of the Father regarding Jesus is the only testimony necessary, but it's not the only testimony available. So Jesus puts the Father in reserve. He doesn't call him first. Instead, he begins this defense by calling a witness to offer testimony that the Jews should have found trustworthy, a witness that they already knew, a witness that they had already interacted with, a witness that by and large they had already accepted as the speaker of truth, a man by the name of John the Baptizer. In verse 33, Jesus says, You have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You see, when John the Baptist first came into the wilderness and started announcing that the Messiah was on his way, the Pharisees, as well as the people, loved John. They loved his message for a time because there was a sense in that generation that this, that the moment of God's intervention was at hand. They felt like God was about to do something. And here was a, 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 a man named John who really seems to fit the Old Testament promise of an Elijah who would come ahead of the Messiah and announce his coming. They saw that in, in, in John, and so they went out and they loved the lesson. The Messiah's on his way. Get ready. Get right. Because God is about to intervene. They loved John until, until he pointed at Jesus. The testimony of John should have been convincing enough. They had listened to him. They had loved what he was saying. But all of a sudden, he points to a man who doesn't fit the profile. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John, John, what are you talking about? This guy is an itinerant teacher. He draws crowds, but he doesn't draw an army. Our Messiah is a military conqueror. He's going to throw off the yoke of Rome. He's going to raise Israel to the, to the position of, of ruling nation over the whole earth. This can't be the one. John, you've made a mistake. No, no, no. No, this is the one. He's going to take away the sins of the world. They loved John until John's testimony didn't match their preconceived notion about what the Messiah would look like. Oh, he's on his way. Good deal, good deal. John says he's on his way. And there he is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not that guy. That guy's just regular folk. We need a warrior king. 
We need a military conqueror. We need a general who can draw and command vast armies. John's testimony should have been convincing. They knew that he was a truth teller. But they were disillusioned because John's Messiah didn't match the military conqueror they were looking for. And so they went out of their way to find ways to dismiss this so-called Messiah. They discounted his message. They denied his ministry. They despised his miracles. Why? I mean, we look at Jesus and we say, what's not to love? People were drawn to him. People wanted to be around him. He did miracles. He healed people. I mean, everywhere he went, reality changed by his very presence. What's not to love? Well, what's not to love was he didn't come and fit into their system. Listen. One of the fascinating things, if it wasn't so dangerous, one of the fascinating things to watch is, is all the different Jesuses that are available today. You know, uh, PETA has a Jesus that doesn't eat meat. Who's going to tell them? <laughs> Critical race theorists have a Jesus who is all about uh, releasing the oppressed. Every, every fad, every movement, they love, to, they love to, to put Jesus on a billboard. They love to, to make Jesus the, the hero of the story. But each version of their Jesuses seem to, interestingly enough, precisely match their view of everything. The Pharisees had a profile of the Messiah. And interestingly enough, he was exactly the person who thought exactly like they did. Listen, if your Jesus never disagrees with you about anything, I'm telling you, he's not the true Jesus. Because you are just not smart enough to get everything right. Occasionally, the true Jesus says, whoa, whoa. Remember, you follow me, I don't follow you. The Pharisees wanted a Messiah who would follow them, who would rally the troops in their name, who would put them in positions of honor. And this Jesus didn't fit the model. So even though he calls John the baptizer to the witness stand, John who was known to be a truth teller, John who for a time had been hugely popular with the very Pharisees who now reject his testimony, he calls John to the stand and they say, no, we, we don't believe John is true. And so he calls the next testimony, his very own works. Verse 36, but the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. As important as John was as a witness, the works given to Jesus by the Father were more persuasive and they were exactly the testimony that the Jews refused to see. Every time Jesus did a miracle, every time he changes the reality of a situation, there is divine evidence right before their eyes, and yet that divine evidence could find no home in their hearts. Every miracle that he had was impressive, but 
But really for Jesus, the miracles were not really ever about the miracles themselves. That was not the end goal of his actions. Remember, Jesus would do the greatest miracle of all, frankly, when he would look at somebody who was broken all the way down to the core of their soul. And he would say, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees would lose their ever-loving minds. Well, who are you to forgive sin? Only God can do that. And Jesus would say very patiently, so that you know, I have the authority to forgive sins. I'll also do this. And he would do a miracle. A miracle that was tangible. A miracle that you could see. A miracle that could be measured, that could be studied. Why did he do the miracles? Because they were designed to point people to him. The miracles were not the goal of his ministry. They were simply the supernatural confirmation that gave credibility to the real miracle. I'm here to change who you are at the core of your existence. I'm here to make you a new creation. If I have to fix a broken leg, if I have to open blind eyes, if I have to do something physical to give the proof the tangible proof that of the transformation that I'm putting in your soul, then so be it. Let's do that. He says, the Father gave me works to do, and I've done those, and those works testify about me that the Father has sent me. You see, the average man in the street at this point was smarter than, than most of the religious rulers because the, the average man in the street would watch Jesus do miracles, and they would say things like this. Can anybody do such things unless he's from God? I mean, it was an obvious connection. The average person saw miracles and knew God was involved. You don't just change a person's reality unless God has stepped in in some way to make himself known. The regular people would say, this has got to be a God thing. But then the religious experts, the credentialed elite, they would say, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not, you're not smart enough to know about all this stuff. You're not educated. You don't have any diplomas on your wall. We're the ones who will make this judgment. And what they, had, what they would do is they were so smart, they were so proud of themselves, that they would jump through intellectual hoops to try and explain why what was obvious to everybody else wasn't what they thought. They say really stupid stuff like, well, well, he's in league with the devil, and Jesus would be like, dude, if, if I cast out devils, how does that work if I'm working for the devil? I mean, most objections to Jesus are not that hard to answer. The evidence is right there for anyone who will see. But remember, the problem is not that we lack evidence. The problem is that we're talking to people who have a will that won't so here we go he calls john the baptist as a test as a as a witness then he calls the for the testimony of his own works the impressive proofs that he puts out on display that should draw people to the conclusion that he is the messiah okay well let's keep going the testimony of the father is called next verse 37 and the Father who sent me, he has testified about me. 
You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Also, you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. In other words, he's going to say, you've never seen the father and you don't even have the word that you're so proud of. You don't even have that saying it's not even in your heart. You read it, but, but it's not implanted. It doesn't stay put. So you can't hear the voice of the Father. You can't see him working. Well, when, when, did, that, when, did, he, when did he work? When did he speak? Well, the most obvious moment was at the baptism. John, Jesus comes at, to John, and John baptizes him. And then we have two supernatural evidences at that moment. We have a voice that's heard from heaven this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is God. That's the proud father gushing at the obedience that he's observing and the humility of the one that he sent to be the lamb who would take away the sins of the, of the world. But then it says that John gives testimony that he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on Jesus. Now, we know that doves have been symbols of, uh, of the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years of Christian history. But understand actually what this text is saying. It's not that an actual dove settled on Jesus. It didn't come down and sit on his shoulder. The, the language of the text means that they were describing something that they were seeing, and the best comparison, the best word picture they could come up with was that it was like a dove. If you've ever been dove hunting, and you've watched, uh, uh, you've watched a dove as it flies when it decides to land, it, it doesn't just plop down on a branch. It, it sort of spreads its wings, and it, 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 and it, and it makes its way until it settles. It's a very distinctive way that that particular bird lands in a tree. That's what this text is describing. There's no description of what the Holy Spirit looked like. We wouldn't expect that. There's no description given to us in, in the Bible of what Jesus looked like. Anytime people have visions of, of God, it's a very uh, mysterious kind of description. We don't have detailed uh, descriptions of, of, of the Trinity. So here, it's not that the, the Holy Spirit is, is, is in the shape of a dove, but as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is settling on Jesus in a visible way, it reminded people of the way a dove alights when it settles. That's the picture here. God had made himself known audibly and visibly in that moment. But the writer of Hebrews tells us also in the entire Old Testament, look at the first two verses of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. In other words, the testimony of the Father has been recorded from Genesis all the way to the time of Jesus. Jesus is pointing them to it, but he says, this word, it's not in your heart, so you're not familiar with the testimony. Where does the story of the Messiah begin? In Genesis chapter 3, when, man, when the man and the woman in the garden commit sin 
and they have and, and there is a, a separation they're going to be escorted out of the garden God says in Genesis 3:15 that there will be a time when the seed of the woman will uh, will do battle with the serpent the serpent will will bite the bite the boy on his heel it's it's poetic language he will bite the boy on his heel but the but the the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent that is the gospel in in its initial stage it's the promise of god from the moment sin entered that there was already a plan in place where god would would one day step into time and space, intervene in human history, and by doing so, he would settle this issue of sin, and he would provide a way back into relationship with Creator God. The entire story of the Old Testament, from the departure of of, of the man and the woman from the garden, the entire story leads to this moment where in the fullness of time, Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, has stepped into time and space to do precisely what God promised in Genesis 3.15. And Jesus says the the testimony of the Father is, is all the way through. It's been delivered through many events, many prophets and other speakers And yet, the very people who claimed to be the religious experts, he said, you have no direct knowledge of God. Wow. For somebody who's on trial, he's pretty aggressive in his attack on the other side. Well, the testimony of the Father, it's all the way through the Word of God. So he, tra- he moves on, he follows that line of thought and brings Scripture as the next witness to the witness stand. You examine the Scriptures, he says to them, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very Scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He says, well, you examine the Scriptures. Let me tell you about that Greek word. The word examine, some translations say you pour over the Scriptures or you, uh, you intensely study the Scriptures. But, the, but, but what's behind that word? It's the word used of a lion tracking his prey by scent. One step at a time, careful to pick up the breeze so that he can have the scent of, of the goal of his search. Here Jesus sends them back to Scriptures to start over. He said, you find yourself examining the Scriptures, but you're only looking for things that justify what you've already decided to do. Go back and pick up the scent and see where it leads you. Follow it to where it actually leads because it leads to me. Notice that he sends them to Scripture. The reason that's a little bit unusual that you may not realize is because by the time of Jesus's day there was there had already developed over the course of many generations and hundreds of years there was a collection of commentaries if you will the collected teachings of the most significant rabbis in Jewish history they would teach on different passages and their teachings would be uh, compiled 
and eventually this collection of writings was known as the Talmud. The Talmud was just that. It was a series of historical commentaries on Scripture. But here's the thing. As they, as they tried to teach the Scripture, they would, they would expand on it to make it better understood. For example, um, you've heard me tell you that, that in Scripture God gave ten commandments. But in the Talmud, those ten commandments, because they, they, they so wanted you to be able to, to walk the line so that you would never break one of the commandments of God, they had expanded the ten commandments to include more than 600 scenarios. And they would paint these, these scenarios so that you would know not only did Jesus say, don't, I mean, did, the, did the commandments say, don't do this? Well, what does that mean? So they would map out all of these situations so that you would know precisely how to keep the law of God. Well, what always happens, happened. Eventually, you get to the place where you don't need to read the scriptures. They're too hard to understand. You just need to read the Talmud. You just need to read the rabbinical explanations. You don't need to know the Ten Commandments. You need to know the 600 ways that you have to keep the law. Jesus, not one time in four Gospels, Jesus never refers to the Talmud. He never points to tradition. He never goes to their commentaries. He always pushes them back to Scripture. A few months ago, one of the truth currents that, that I did, I don't even remember what the, what the topic was, but I remember distinctly one of the comments that came in. I don't spend a lot of time pondering uh, comments that I get on truth currents, uh, but this one has kind of stuck in my head for these, these months. I got a comment, and, and, and you know how sometimes when you're going to insult somebody, you start by saying something nice? I mean, you know, in the Bible, they would often approach Jesus, and before they said something to attack him, they'd say, you know, we know you're a great teacher. And then they'd go on and say, well, I got a comment on Truth Current some months ago, and it started this way. It started by saying, Dr. Gabbert seems like a really good-hearted pastor. Well, you know the next line is going to be awesome, <laughs> right? Dr. Gabbert seems like a really good-hearted pastor, but, but he only relies on the Bible to find truth. Okay, okay, no, no. So I'm like, okay. The next line's going to be even better. <laughs> so I read this. I read this fairly long response to, to my truth current, and basically, uh, basically what it came down to was uh, this guy admitted that he was from another theological tradition, and he said, um, you know, while the Bible is important, he fails to to draw from the traditions of the church. Now, let me tell you something, folks. I'm, I'm a church historian. My PhD is in church history. 
nobody understands or has an appreciation for the traditions of 2,000 years of Christian history any more than I do. Uh, I, I, I think that there are orthodox boundaries that the church has provided for us, fencing that allows us to know when we're leaving uh, the faith. I, I'm, I'm all about that. But let me tell you something. The Protestant Reformation was, was, a, was a battle over this very point. And let me say categorically, the Bible alone is sufficient to determine our faith and our practice. I have a great appreciation for the traditions of the church. I've been a Southern Baptist since the day I was born. I have a deep appreciation for the denominational heritage that I have. But listen, none of that trumps the Word of God. Jesus never went to the Talmud. He never said so-and-so rabbi said this or said that. He always pushed them back to the Word of God. That's why the people were so amazed every time they heard Jesus teach. They would say, he teaches like one who has authority. What does that mean? Well, the typical way that a rabbi would teach in the first century was they would say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they would quote from the Talmud. Jesus taught the Word of God direct, almost like he wrote it. (laughs) And he spoke with authority, and the people could tell there was an authority there. I mentioned the Protestant Reformation. Listen, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he was not excommunicated by the Catholic Church because he opposed the Pope. He was not excommunicated because he disagreed with Catholic theology. Martin Luther was excommunicated, in a sense, kicked out of heaven because he translated the Bible into German so the average man in the street could have the Word of God for himself. That has always been the battle that the enemy has, has fought. It is to keep the Word of God out of the hands of, uh, of God's people. And that's what Jesus is suggesting here. You, you search the Scriptures only to find what it is you want to prove your case, but you never let the Scriptures be implanted in you so that you're shaped by them. We live in a generation that is filled with people who want to shape the Scriptures. We hold the Scriptures beneath us and stand as judge, and we say, well, that's not original to the text, or, 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 or that, that, that's, a, that's a later edition, or, or, uh, or these are probably not the actual words of Jesus. Somebody, somebody added that at another time. We put ourselves above Scripture and, be the, and pretend to be the judge of Scripture. When Scripture is to be here, Scripture judges us. And Jesus pushes them back through the scriptures and he says it's not the tradition if he had said well let's talk about the talmud the pharisees they'd have set up and taken notice they would said okay now we're getting somewhere he said no you pour over the scriptures like a lion on the sin of his prey but you never actually get to the prey you never follow the scent to where it leads you veer off because you're looking for what you need to justify your own choices. Go back to the Scriptures and follow that scent because it leads to me. Well, this is where he, this is where this legal drama really takes a turn. He's called his witnesses, John the baptizer, 
the works that Jesus did, the testimony of the Father, and the testimony of Scripture. Now he's going to reverse the indictment. And this is where the movie takes an interesting turn. He's going to cite their unbelief and he's going to spin this around and, in, and Jesus is going to become the prosecutor and the Pharisees are going to become the defendants. In verse 41, he cites their unbelief. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Well, their hypocrisy was that they professed to have a knowledge of God, but they had willfully limited and distorted that knowledge in order to improve their standing in the estimation of others. In other words, they weren't interested in religion so that they could be changed. They were interested in religion so that they could be somebody. They accused Jesus of acting independently of God, but now he accuses them of the same thing. This is the volitional problem of unbelief. They didn't believe in Jesus because they had a will that would not. Here's the thing. This is an interesting verse. He says, let's see, um, verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you. I did a little research to try and track this down. And it depends on how you categorize people. So somewhere between 63 and 70 is what I found. We'll go with 63. There are at least 63 known episodes from about 150 years before Jesus to about 100 years after Jesus. In a 250-year period, there are at least 63 pseudo-messiahs that came forward. Came forward, raised their hand, and said, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that will throw off the yoke of Rome. I'm the one that will lead Israel uh, to glory. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm here. 63 times. How many of those messiahs do you think they crucified? Zero. Why? Because 63 times they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. 63 times the Jewish authorities rallied to the cause and said, this is the one we've been waiting on. 63 times they tried to rebel against Rome because their conquering Messiah had shown himself. And 63 times they were destined for disappointment. Let me read you one, just one. They're all about the same. In the year 132, about 100 years after Jesus, there was a self-proclaimed Messiah who came. His name was Simeon ben Kosaba. He claimed to be the Messiah, 
He claimed that he was from the line of David and that he was here to lead a revolt against Rome and to make uh, the nation of, of Israel uh, the mightiest nation on the earth. Now what's interesting was his claim was supported by a man named Akiba. Akiba was the most eminent rabbi of the day in that generation. He hailed Simeon by quoting Numbers 24, 17, and said, Simeon is the star out of Jacob foretold by Balaam. Simeon's messianic pretensions involved himself, his supporters, and the people of Judea in the most fearful ruin as the Romans responded without mercy. Sixty-three times they said, ah, here's the Messiah. One time they crucified a man who claimed to be the anointed one. Now here's the thing you have to think about that. On the one hand, there is all of this positive evidence. There's the testimony of John. You say, well, John the Baptist isn't around anymore. That's okay. What do we do in a court case today when a witness is not available? He gets sick or he dies unexpectedly and he can't come to a court case. We substitute his deposition. His sworn testimony is substituted for him. It doesn't matter that John the Baptist is not alive in our generation. We have in the Bible his deposition, if you will. We have the testimony of John the Baptist. We have the testimony of the works of Jesus. We have the testimony of the Father. We have the testimony of Scripture. But then on the negative side, doesn't it make sense that knowing that there is an enemy of the people of God who is attempting to short-circuit God's plans for human history, doesn't it make sense that he would be in favor of letting all the false messiahs get through and that he would do anything he could do to prevent the true messiah from being recognized. On the one hand, there's all kinds of positive evidence that Jesus is who he says he was. But even from the negative side, the fact that the Jews got the messiah question wrong 63 times in a row and then rejected Jesus, that should tell us there's something about this Jesus that was fundamentally different from all of the other pretenders. He didn't fit their profile, their model, but he was who he said he was. Well, he then introduces their accuser. Verse 45. Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. <laughs> That's interesting. Jesus saying, listen, when the time comes for you to stand judgment, I'm not going to be your accuser. In fact, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's the thing. They rejected a prophet that, that Moses told them about. Let me, let me do this quickly, but, I, but I, want you to, I want you to have this. If you go to the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, if you're reading through your Bible 
chronologically, you're probably about to get to Deuteronomy. Please stay the course, okay? <laughs> Deuteronomy, the word deutero means a second time. Nomos comes from the word law. So Deuteronomy is literally the law a second time. So when you fight your way through uh, Leviticus and then you survive numbers and you get to Deuteronomy and you're going to go, did, did I not just read this exact same thing? Yes, you did. But it's a restatement. It's, it's Moses in his last days making sure the people understood. So Deuteronomy has a, a very deja vu feel to it if you've just read Leviticus and Numbers. But there was a, there was a scene in, in the, the time of, of Moses where, where they, God said, I'm going to come, and sp- come down from the mountain. I'm going to speak to the people. Well, when God came, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's black cloud, there's fire. And the people were so overwhelmed, they were so afraid of God, they backed away from the mountain and said to Moses, listen, you go up on the mountain, you speak to God, we don't want to speak with him directly. Okay, that's the backstory for Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, in verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses talking, like me from among you, from your countrymen, to, hi- to him you shall listen. This is in accordance with everything that you ask of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Do not let me hear the voice of the Lord my God again, and do not let me see this great fire anymore, or I will die. They said, We don't want to talk to God directly. We want somebody to deliver his message to us. And so God answered that request with this promise. The Lord, verse 17, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. Now, what is being said is, there were lots of prophets in the Old Testament, but none of them were like Moses. Moses was on a whole different level. Moses was the hero of the Jewish faith. But in Deuteronomy 18, God says, because they don't want to to speak directly with me, I will give them a prophet like Moses. It's not like any of the Old Testament prophets. It's somebody fundamentally different, somebody at a whole new level. And he will deliver my words that I put in his mouth. Jesus, who has claimed to be equal with God, is here saying, I am that prophet promised to you through Moses and because you rejected the words from the father that came through me when you stand before God someday I'm not going to be your accuser Moses is going to stand up and say I told you this is what to look for this is the one that I said would come They had no need of another Moses in their own minds because they had taken the sacrificial system and turned animal sacrifice into the goal. They thought if they just kept sacrificing animals that they would be in good standing with God. And yet the story of the entire Bible is Animal sacrifice was an object lesson. It was a placeholder until one would come who could be 
a once-for-all sacrifice and pay for sins forever and ever. Amen. This one was the one that they not only were supposed to be looking for, this one was what they needed. A better sacrifice and a better priest. You say, man, John chapter 5 is pretty heavy. Can't we just get to some miracles? Listen, (laughs) next Sunday he feeds 5,000 people, okay? We'll get to one of the great miracles of of the Gospels. But here's why chapter 5 of John is important to us. Remember I told you that John chapter 5 verse 24 is like John 3.16. It's the Gospel in a single verse. John 5.24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 5.24 is essentially uh, a mirror verse to John 3.16. Do you know that you can share the truth about Jesus with anybody and never leave John chapter 5? I mean, the gospel is there. All of the proof, all of the testimony about who Jesus is, it's all there. John chapter 5 is a critical chapter for us. But here's what it comes down to. It's a legal drama. And all the witnesses have come forward. All the charges have been answered. All the evidence has been displayed. So, you are the jury what is your verdict you see if you say Jesus is who he says he is and that you have come to Jesus that you have received uh, the gift of life that he offers that you have begun that process of transformation that, that you are a new creation if that's who you are if that's your testimony then the question is, have you gotten on with it? I mean, are you living that life? Because see, he didn't save us so that we could just sort of sit back and, and, and wait for the day that we get, get lifted into heaven. He, he, he changes us into new creatures so that we can go represent him in our generation. Are you living the life you've been called to live, the one you've been invited to live? If not, get on with it. But maybe you haven't had that transformative moment with the Spirit of Jesus in you. Well, here's all the evidence. We have the deposition of John the baptizer. We have the testimony of the works of Jesus. We have his own testimony about himself. We have the testimony of the Father about him. We have the unfolding story of Scripture that leads to him. All of the evidence is there. Will you follow him? Will you believe him? If not, it's not because there's not enough proof It's because your will won't. But let me tell you something. This question is the only question that matters for eternity.
Don't put it off. Don't put it on the back burner. Don't say, I'll get to it when I get to it. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? He is, in fact, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He came to make it possible for us to be forgiven of sin, for us to have our debt paid, a debt we cannot pay on our own. He made it possible for us to know and be known by God. Do you believe Jesus? We're going to take just a minute of our time. We're going to close this morning with an opportunity for you to come and speak to one of our pastors. You don't need to be intimidated. You don't need to be frightened. Listen, I know all of them. They're, they're, they're pretty lame. <laughs> they're not scary. But they would love to answer your questions and talk to you about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, the whole case has been laid out in front of you. There's nothing left for you to object to. What it comes down to now is you choose yes or no. I'm inviting you to choose yes and come to Jesus. If you already know Jesus, are you living the life that you've been called to live? Are you walking in a manner worthy of the calling that has been given to you? If not, come and pray. Listen, the good news of the gospel is not that we get to be made right once. It's that we get to be made right over and over and over again. Come and pray and just ask God to wash you clean, to give you energy, to give you His uh, uh, fresh infilling of your spirit, and just determine, have a will that says, I will live the life that has been granted me. You need to be a part of a church. We'd love to talk to you about that too. Come and talk to one of our pastors and we'll visit with you about that. Whatever you need to do, there's no more waiting. There's no more evidence that you need. There's nothing else that you need to figure out. It's all here. John chapter 5. Come and do business with Jesus. Father, thank you so much. Your word is is impressive in ways that we can't even articulate. There's a depth here that we can't fully explore. There's, there, there's a power here that, that is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But we know this. Your Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the heart of our own condition. And so, Father, I ask that in this room, You would draw each of us to Yourself for the first time for salvation or for a subsequent time when we need to be made right and refreshed so that we live the life we've been called to. Father, make Jesus known here in unmistakable ways. We open our hearts and our minds to your Spirit and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.